Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Aviva Rumani, and welcome to episode 19 of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi weekly podcast featuring insights and stories from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Today, we are pleased to present a conversation between Lion Tree CEO Arya Borkov and Bill McGlashan, the founder and managing partner of TPG Growth and the co-founder and CEO of The Rise Fund, whose co-founders include Jeff Skoll and U2's Bono. TPG Growth recently closed its fourth fund with $3.7 billion in capital. In addition to their social impact fund, The Rise Fund, TPG Growth's better-known investments include stakes in Uber, Airbnb, and co-creating the film studio STX. I just had a great conversation with Bill McGlashan, who runs the TPG Growth business, $14 billion of assets under management. It's all about how you marry social impact, changing the world, with outsized financial returns. We go through specific examples of how he's doing it, which investments he's already making, Beyond that, we talked about how he incubates companies like STX, how he found Uber at a very early stage, Airbnb, and how he's reshaping some of the private equity models in favor of growth. And that naturally leads us to a discussion about entrepreneurialism in this day and age. How are entrepreneurs dealing with the dynamic changes going on around us? We all grapple with that. And then we really wrapped up the conversation at this time of year with some reflection. What do we want to change about ourselves? How do we want to integrate our family life more with our work life? How do we want to achieve success in all aspects of our lives? It was a very warm conversation. I was really happy to have Bill here. Bill, thank you very much for coming to visit us here at Lion Tree. And it's a great pleasure to be talking to a friend and someone I admire tremendously at a great time for you and for TPG Growth and obviously for now the Rise Fund. So thanks for being here. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Pleasure to be here at Lion Tree. Sorry we missed each other at the, some of our recent excursions in Brazil, et cetera. But yes. uh, we get to hang out in New York City in December, which is a nice time. Which is lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Just where I want to be. <laughs> exactly. Before we get into the Rise Fund, I'd love to talk about TPG growth for a little bit because you have built this now into a $10 billion business for TPG. And for a lot of our listeners that obviously are familiar with private equity in overall and in general, what does growth equity mean versus venture versus private equity? What is really growth in terms of how you define it? A portion of what we do within TPG growth is traditional growth equity, meaning it's minority investments in growing businesses where there's real revenue and often profits already. And we're trying to escalate the growth rates, trying to help support the entrepreneur build a business. But we also do buyouts. We also incubate businesses. You know, one of our businesses, SDX Entertainment, which is a movie business you're familiar with, we started with a very small investment and created Noodle Analytics. Another one, Noodle AI, is a business we incubated. So we do the whole spectrum. What we define as growth is returns driven by growth by underwriting the growth of a business and helping to accelerate the growth of a business as opposed to using leverage or cost reduction as the way to generate growth and profit. So it's really aligned with an entrepreneur, aligned with the growth rates of a business. And what we find is our ability to de-risk that outcome, make the right underwriting decisions, and then our ability to sort of add capability to that business, given the scale of our global platform and our strategic capabilities in each of these sectors that we invest, lets us ultimately deliver real growth. So we had a portfolio that grew 53% last year top line across a 16 billion revenue set of businesses. So it's really unusual growth. And again, we don't care if it's a buyout, 40% of what we do will buy a business and grow it uh, or partner with an entrepreneur as a minority partner. But in all cases, we want to bring 
growth to bear. Right, because people usually, traditionally at least, think about private equity as being an asset class that really uses leverage and that's right. Um, takes advantage of existing cash flows and retools to management teams, et cetera, and creates more efficiencies and comes out of it. And I know TPG does that as well overall. Yep. But for the growth curve and the growth strategy, it's really about underwriting uh, the future business prospects that's right. versus the existing capital structure. Yep, that's right. I think as a firm, we're doing more and more growth investing, period. Across Asia, whether we're writing big checks or little checks, it's all about growth. And even in the U.S., we're increasingly as a firm, in fact, the vast majority of what we do is really about growth. If you think about the world we're in today with all the disintermediation happening across every industry, you better be good at underwriting growth. And the magic of our firm is that unlike many in our business, we're really integrated. You know, the TPG growth business sits within a broader firm that does credit, real estate, public investing and large check private equity and our ability to leverage the insights and the industry knowledge across that whole platform across the globe is what brings the really interesting capability set. Yeah. And there's no accident that being based in San Francisco and having yep. that kind of growth orientation That's right. makes a lot of sense, but you are global in your mandate, right? So totally global. We're you, the most how, global in the world. Right. So how do you bring that DNA of you know San Francisco disruption, new technologies, new initiatives, entrepreneurialism into the global focus into other markets? It's interesting, but the entrepreneurs that we work with in places across the African continent, Latin America, we just recently invested in a very interesting SaaS business in Brazil called Resultados Digitais, India, where we're invested in LensCart, for example. All of those entrepreneurs are looking for the same toolkit that an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley is looking for. And in many cases, they want access to that toolkit that has evolved in that incubator of growth, which is Silicon Valley. So the place that we live and operate and are headquartered globally, San Francisco, is a very relevant place in the world today because the, what's happening in financial services and healthcare and education in media is happening in the same way globally. The three key drivers today of mobility, SaaS, cloud-driven service offerings, and ultimately analytics, AI, are revolutionizing every major industry, but it's happening in some sense first in the emerging markets around the globe because they're leapfrogging straight to those answers. So if you think of what's happening, for example, in Africa around digital payments, they've gone straight to a digital solution going right around the traditional credit rails that Visa and MasterCard and the major banks have operated in here in the US and gone straight to a digital currency called M-Pesa in Kenya, for example, where 40% of the economy runs through a digital currency solution. Now, we're going to get there here as well. You're going to see these kinds of digital solutions arrive in the U.S., but they've leapfrogged straight to that answer in some of these emerging markets based on those same three key drivers of SaaS, cloud-based solutions, mobility, and analytics. You're touching on something that I try to impart on our firm and um, thinking about the business globally. Take it for granted sometimes that the trends in media and technology happen to be similar around the globe. Mm -hmm. You can't say that for other industries where there's really geographic or regional differences or disconnects or differences of development, sure. Yep. But you know you can scale the knowledge base and the trends that you're following in those areas, like you said, in mobility and, mm -hmm. and SaaS and analytics, et cetera, and other areas around the globe. And then when you couple that with a demographic shift, yep. and if you're really looking at millennials, mm -hmm. it takes you to Africa. 
That's right. Because the Middle East and Africa have a much higher percentage of people living under the age of 30 than, right. than the U.S. I think it's a great orientation to have globally. Let's go to the size of the fund. A, you just raised a $3.5 billion fund, which is great. Congratulations. Thank you. How do you think about the appropriate sizing versus the opportunities? I mean, you're looking out there, SoftBank with a $100 billion vision fund that could go to, I guess, to $200 billion, And that's great and grandiose. And it's a great announcement. I'm sure they're making great investments as well. But how is $3.5 billion the right size for what you're trying to do? Yeah, this was a fund that we raised in a very short period of time, in part because we had about $8 billion of demand for the $3.5 billion we took from our partners. And we've had a same core group of partners for a very long time within the growth business. Today, we're managing across rise and growth collectively about $14 billion of AUM. The magic for us is to stay focused on being a business builder and a business building partner to entrepreneurs. And that doesn't necessarily scale to writing big checks. Mm -hmm. um, there's a level of hands-on-ism required if you're going to actually deliver that capability. If it goes beyond marketing and you're really going to be a partner to these companies, there's just a pace at which we think it works. We're far more interested in continuing to deliver great returns to our LPs and ultimately, frankly, delivering a great business building solution to our partners, our entrepreneurs and the companies we're working with than we are scaling the capital we're managing. So we think it's the right size and we're staying disciplined. It's a little contrarian in the world, as you suggested, in the world we live in today, where you see these huge pools of capital as sovereign funds and pension funds globally are looking for yield, given what's happened in the market. Alternatives are really become the critical place to find yield and large private individuals with extraordinary wealth are looking for the same opportunities. So you see the amount of capital that have moved into alternatives has become quite extraordinary. But our model doesn't, frankly, scale that way. We have to stay focused and stay disciplined on what we do for a living if yeah. we're going to deliver on the promise to our partners and our entrepreneurs. No belittling $14 billion of assets under management. It's obviously a big number and you could have a lot of flexibility around it. But I, I think it's important to point out that there's some good tension yeah. around having some scarce capital when you're looking at businesses that you're yeah. obviously looking for growth and you want a high criteria for what that could look like and follow on investments and business building versus just spraying it around. We have the challenge, as you can imagine, in our business. We have to find those situations where first we can add that value, where we can actually deliver business building capability. But we also have to find those cases where the entrepreneur appreciates that. You know, a good marriage is one where both sides are excited. You wouldn't want to marry someone that didn't want to be your partner at the end right. of the day. And if they aren't looking for that value add, it's not a good fit for us. So it's in that exercise that we find the magic of picking great companies that we can work with and create outsized returns at the end of the day for them and for us. With these large pools of capital hunting, 99% of the time, we're not going to get to a place where we meet because they can get cheaper capital from other sources and they can get a term sheet done in a week. And that's just not how we work. For us, it takes time to figure out, is this the right marriage? Are we going to be able to deliver the things we say we're going to deliver? Is the marriage between us and that company going to be a healthy, enduring one where we can collectively be all that we can be? And that doesn't necessarily work particularly well in a world where you have a, these sources of capital that are enormous, that move very quickly and aren't as valuation sensitive as we tend to be. Yeah, it's a relationship business and you're ultimately going to grow together. And That's right. And Bill, you have a phenomenal reputation 
in private equity and finance and media, technology, et cetera. So I can see why people are attracted to you and what you're doing. Well, to our group, it certainly goes beyond me to a group of people that are very committed to this. We've been together for many years and have a track record of building great companies. And when it's the right fit, it's quite magical. So give me an example for the core growth fund of an investment you made that you grew with, that you found early on, that has been very successful so far? It's ranged from, I mentioned earlier, a company like STX Entertainment, where we, because we've owned media businesses over the years, uh, were partners with, uh, at CAA, the Hollywood agency, we had done a bunch of different content businesses, including historically a challenging investment in MGM Studios. We saw what worked and didn't work in the content business, both feature films, as well as short form, virtual television, et cetera, and set about creating a new studio, which hasn't been done in a generation. We were ultimately able to build it. This year, we'll produce the third most movies of any studio in America, movies like Bad Moms and The Foreigner, which just came out, Molly's Game, which is coming out shortly. We're the number one VR producer now. We have our own channel with Google number one partner with Facebook. We have television shows in China, et cetera, et cetera. So it's become a real business that we built from broadcloth. It was an idea. And we partnered with Bob Simons, who's a, an old friend of mine. And we built a real company with hundreds of employees and you know billion dollars in content we're putting out this year. Another example would be a business. Now, that's really an incubation yep. story. That's an incubation story. <clears throat> Given your expertise and your knowledge of yep. the industry and having the other portfolio assets, yep, which is great. And obviously I've heard great things about Molly's Game and, mm-hmm. and other... Uh, content that's coming out and it's a great innovative story but how about an example of some of the growth companies that you've seen along the way i know you've invested in airbnb and uber yep. and box and survey monkey yep. all phenomenal brands and companies at what stage do you get into those companies it ranges from very early in a case like uber it wasn't necessarily very early from a valuation perspective but we're sitting with a very attractive return there but it was early in the company's evolution they had really perfected san francisco at the time we came into the investment, they hadn't launched UberX yet. They had a black car business. We got involved to help them with General Motors, working out a deal for them with General Motors to further accelerate that part of the business. UberX was an idea, but it hadn't yet happened. The unit economics were clear in San Francisco, but nowhere else. We helped them with their India and China strategy. They hadn't really launched there. It was a growth equity venture investment at the time. And we worked out an investment structure that we thought was very attractive that had some elements to it beyond just a straight traditional plain vanilla investment. And we were able to do that because they expected us to work for a living and they expected us to be a strategic financial partner uh, helping them on their journey. So there's an example where we were later than an incubation, but it was still fairly early at the time that we invested and believed that we could de-risk their journey to an extent and help them as a real active partner. I mean, we've been a very active partner all the way along. But that's unusual for a quote-unquote private equity firm yeah. to have made that investment at that time. Who in the broader landscape were you competing with or would you consider to be your competitors for an opportunity like an Uber or Airbnb? It's really by sector. So in the tech sector, all the obvious players that invest in tech will often show up alongside us as partners or as alternatives to our capital. We don't tend to participate in processes. We avoid situations where they're looking for the high bid, if you will, because as I mentioned earlier, in in finding the right partner to embark on this kind of a journey with, that doesn't tend to yield success for us. So we don't often have competitors when we're actually in a discussion with an entrepreneur. It's usually they've decided we're the right partner and then we're figuring out a fair 
partnership structure that works for everybody. I often say that in private equity, broadly speaking, there are three ways to get to a deal. There's actionability, there's having a management team in search of a thesis in search of an asset, and there's a thesis in search of a management team in search of a, right. an asset that's actionable. Many people start with actionability. It's a process, it's yep. for sale. Yep. Obviously we engage in that all the time. But the other two ways to do it are potentially cheaper and much more long-term in nature and more valuable, right? Have a thesis, Agreed. have a management team or vice versa. It sounds like that's what you're engaging in. If you think about the former, you're always going to end up at a level of average. If you're competing in every deal and there's a process and you're the high bidder, you know, just definitionally, it's hard to create alpha right. and meaningfully better returns in that context. So we're delivering top quartile performance consistently for us has translated to being much more thematic and much more careful about picking who we're going to work with and making sure we're getting paid for what we're bringing to the table in the form of valuation structure and governance and all the other elements involved in the investment. And the best slope of value creation is obviously through great management and operation. That's one of the interesting things. If we look back over 25 years of history, the correlation with quality of team and the macro dynamic are the two keys. If you get management right, leadership right, you can suffer a lot of challenges and you can pivot and adjust what you're doing and life can work, even if you get the macro wrong. If you get management wrong and the macro wrong, life is really hard and those end up being bad outcomes in general. It's interesting how critical those two dimensions are. And in the world we live in today in particular, where the macro is changing at a rate that is extraordinary in every industry, what's happened in media, for example, what's happening in education with virtual education and digital education, what's happening in financial services with new forms of banking and Cryptocurrencies. Cryptocurrencies. It is extraordinary how every major industry is being disintermediated dramatically. And so trying to see five years, 10 years forward uh, has become not only challenging, but a true imperative as an investor and as an entrepreneur to understand where we're going. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about the world that we live in, because it is a complicated world today. It's obviously experiencing a lot of change, a lot of natural unrest, some agitation along the way. Clearly, in the industries that we focus on, media and technology, et cetera, there's a lot of uh, focus now, appropriately so, on social change and much more impact for good and good workplaces, for example. But beyond that, we're looking at social impact overall. And that's a time, I think, that we're all embracing and trying to create the best environment for our kids, ultimately, right? So the RISE Fund is a $2 billion fund founded by you, Jeff Skoll, and uh, some guy named Bono. <laughs> and the fund is committed to achieving measurable, positive social and environmental outcomes alongside competitive financial returns. Break that down. What does that mean in terms of the goal of the fund? That This is the main reason, aside from the fact that I want to talk about your normal business and the fact that it's great catching up with you. This is unique. The Rise Fund is a special endeavor. Tell us how it came together, why Jeff, Bono, and Bill came together to do it, and what it really is trying to achieve. My journey here with Impact Investing started with a startup in the nonprofit world that I launched right out of college. So I graduated from Yale, got the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, and UNDP at the time, Bill Draper, who was the Sutter Hill founder, decided to back me to start something called World Service. And I promptly moved to Dar es Salaam, Tanzania and to San Jose, Costa Rica, and started working to build a equivalent of a multinational Peace Corps. 
working with our U.S. Peace Corps, the JOCV, the Japanese, the Komsomol back then, the Soviet Youth Organization. And I- You did this while you were at university? I I did it just as I graduated. Wow. Literally right out of school. I'd gotten into Stanford Business School and deferred for two years and then started my nonprofit, my NGO. And I worked very hard. I carried on through business school working on it. In fact, we were a big employer of summer interns in this nonprofit that I'd started. I became convinced through that process that these fundamental challenges that we were trying to address in the developing world were not going to be solved through government, you know, philanthropy alone, that ultimately business was the most important or at least a critical part of the solution in helping people attain basic health care, education, decent lives. And you could look at a case study like Chile, where they have a robust middle class and that country emerged from a very difficult challenge state to a very stable, healthy, robust economy where most of the basics are available to everybody in that country today. You look at China, what's happened with China, the extraordinary emergence from starvation and poverty when my grandmother was raised in Beijing to where it is today, a short time later, two generations later, you have just an extraordinary transition that's been driven by economic development, fundamental economic. So I became convinced that investment you know, and building companies was extremely important to ultimately driving change in the world. So my passion around TPG growth, which is one of the largest, the largest integrated global growth equity firm in the world, where we're investing all these places, the U.S. elsewhere, building great companies. My sort of personal passion around it had to do with the effect that building businesses like this has on the world, because it's a good thing. Growth is an impact platform fundamentally. What's been missing is we as a human race have not had the capacity to effectively integrate externalities into our thinking. So whether negative or positive, we don't quantify them. We don't make good judgments around the impact of businesses, negative or positive, because we don't quantify it. So we set out, Bono and Jeff and I, to figure out, and my partners at TPG, to figure out, could we underwrite impact? Could we actually measure it, both positive and negative? Because clearly changing the world with capital is not a new concept. That makes a lot of sense, right? Totally. It's obviously a great idea, but that capital could not be governed or measured in the right way. What you're saying, you're going a step beyond that and saying, we can change the world with capital and actually being judged on normal and accelerated financial returns along the way as well. Exactly. To your point, the world came together and agreed on a set of goals called the UN Sustainable Development Goals. There are 17 of them. And the cost between now and 2030 of us creating a just world is $40 trillion. $30 trillion of that is unaccounted for today. And in the creation of those UN Sustainable Development Goals, which again, the entire world agreed on as important goals that have to do with healthcare and education, all these fundamental entitlements, if you will, that all humans are owed, there was a clear understanding that we need business to be part of that solution. Investment and capital and growth of businesses is the only chance of solving that gap. If you think about it, the Gates Foundation is the largest philanthropy in the world. That represents less than one and a half percent of the investment required in the very first year of the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So we ain't going to get there with philanthropy and government money. It has to be business that's activated. You can't activate business unless we know what we're activating about. The reason businesses perform is we have very clear measures. 
We measure the unit economics of a business. We measure our competitive position relative to other companies in the space. We have KPIs, key performance indicators that we operate against. Why wouldn't we have the ability to do the same as it relates to the social or environmental impact of that particular business? Yeah, the capital has to grow, not just fix problems. That's right. And we've been the industry, the, the impact world, Jeff Skoll, by the way, is one of the pioneers, as is Pierre Midiar, who's also part of this. There's been tremendous work done by foundations, by impact investors for a decade now. This isn't a new concept, to your point, where they've made great progress in figuring out how to invest against impact, proving that there's no conflict between return and impact, and finding ways to measure it. So this isn't new. It isn't a new concept. What we tried to do is figure out, is there a way of measuring impact that works for an investment firm like us? And can we do it at scale? And can we bring in institutional capital as partners that have not historically done impact investing to get them educated and committed? And again, demonstrate the success, both from a returns perspective and an impact perspective to that capital. And sitting around the table of Rise, by the way, is $10 trillion of capital that are there watching the sausage get made. And our ambition here is at the end of the day, when we've shown the collinearity between impact and return, when we've shown that we can deliver both great impact and great return, when we can audit the impact and we have KPMG doing the assurance work on the impact outcomes, that we will have activated a way of measuring impact and we will have the credibility that the $10 trillion can bring to bear against that agenda to allow this whole industry to scale. Yeah, it's a new asset class. It needs effect. to be a new asset class. Every investment has impact. The only question is, is it good or bad? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every investment has impact. And to the degree. And to a degree, to your point, is discernment between goods. There are investments that have a greater impact and lesser impact. Right. So that's a, a major opportunity and responsibility because yes. if this is effective, and I'm sure it will be, $2 billion is a drop in the bucket. It's a drop a in the bucket. That's right. It could really be scaled much well, higher. Well, it's not going to be done by us. We set up a platform called Rise Labs, which is the entity that is doing all the impact underwriting. We have collected 700 studies from around the world that connect the dots between a business output and a social environmental outcome. We've come up with a methodology along with our partners at Bridgespan to actually do that work underwriting and then baking those impact metrics into our KPIs. And I mentioned KPMG. All of that is being done in a public benefit corporation called Rise Labs. That will all be available to the world to use. And the commitment we've made to our LPs and to the Founders Board of Rise is that this will be a public good that everyone can use. So the, the real amplification comes when hopefully a lot of other competitors show up with lots and lots of capital using a standard of impact measurement that allows us all to sing from a common hymnal. And the data could be shared and scaled. Totally. And so tell me about the returns. What's the threshold? Underwriting is no different than growth. We've had a long track record of success in growth. It's the same investing team as growth. So when a an investment comes in, to growth, it first has to be a good deal. If it's a deal where we can make a great return and it's an impact investment, it goes to rise. Mm-hmm. So there's no compromise. And the important point there is we are investing in businesses where the output of the business is that which creates the impact. So this is not a ESG vehicle. We're not running businesses in a different way in order to create impact. There's no compromise. If the business creates impact, then you want the same rigorous focus on performance, the same great management team, the same rigor applied as you would any other business. You know, what, what's, business. Been the, what's been the performance of the TBG growth funds overall? I'm apparently not allowed to say what the Got actual it. returns are, Got but it. it's top quartile performance. Got it. So we generate great returns. Got it. And so it's that same 
lens. There's yep. no difference yep. in the investment underwriting. What we've added to the growth team is a group of dedicated leaders in each sector for RISE that are impact sector leads. We've added some extraordinary management, additional management support. We've added the founders board who are important figures across all the sectors. Lorene Powell Jobs, Queen Rania, Richard Branson, Paul Pullman, Richard Branson, obviously Bono, Jeff Skoll, Pierre Melody Lear, Hobson, Melody Hobson, Paul Pullman of Unilever. We just added a new founders board member from India. So we've got an extraordinary group that has gathered that are committed to supporting these companies. So we show up with a hand-selected group of very important institutional investors, sovereign funds, pension funds, certain high net worth families, a group of the most important leaders in impact among that group I just listed, and then the largest growth equity firm in the world that's delivered the consistent performance we have. And that group has come together to do this. And, and so again, what, hopefully it, it yields a lot more competitors in the future. Sure. And I'm sure you'll have a bunch of co-investment opportunities and the two billion could rise, uh, so to speak. How, <laughs> how, <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> sure. Um, how are you going to start? You have different verticals that you're focusing on, different sectors yep. you're focusing on. Give us an example of what those look like and, and how do you prioritize it? We've made five investments to date. The first investment we made was a $150 million investment in a company called EverFi, which is you a know well. yeah, great company. Education. Exactly. Great company. Great company. We partnered with Lorene Jobs and Emerson Collective on that investment. It's an important company delivering SaaS-based education solutions, supplemental education and things like financial literacy, but also sexual assault reduction, alcohol abuse reduction, supplemental education for summer and early childhood. That company sells to a thousand universities, 20,000 schools across the U.S., partners with all the leading banks, as well as NFL, NBA, MLB. I mean, it's just a great, very high growth SaaS content business. We invested in an analytics platform called Dharma, which was brought to us by Larry Brilliant, who is credited with having eliminated smallpox from the world. And Steve Singh, who's the Concur founder. It's a fascinating analytics platform that was originally created around the Ebola epidemic in Africa and allows for mobile in the field analytics and high level insight. They've closed deals with the International Rescue Committee, with Doctors Without Borders, with the World Health Organization, the CDC, et cetera. It's a fascinating company growing very, very rapidly. It shows you sort of the spread here. One, an analytics business, the other an education platform. We invested in a dairy business in India. We collect milk from 250,000 small stakeholder farmers. This is small, like three cows, kind of small. We do it every day. We collect from them. We collect through 70 different distribution collection facilities across 70,000 villages in southern India through 70 refrigeration facilities and then 11 production facilities. And interestingly, the impact underwriting in the case of Dodal Dairy is uplift in household income of these small stakeholder farmers as we help them increase productivity and as we provide financing for them so they can sell their milk every day because they can't handle the working capital, obviously, of waiting for long periods to get paid. And as we increase the quality of the milk and ultimately process into curds and yogurts and other high value goods, it increases their wealth. And that is what we measure in that case. We invested in another education company in India called LEED. So broad mandate across all the core sectors that we've historically invested in within growth. And the check sizes will be varied? We'll go just like we do in growth. It's the same pattern. We're willing to incubate in some cases or invest smaller growth checks all the way up to $150, $200 million checks when we're investing against a more mature business. This could be your life project, right? Well, it's been my life project, right? I mean, the reality is the growth 
business while not explicitly measuring impact. You know, we're very proud. We created 500,000 jobs last year and 500,000 jobs the year before that. We're deeply passionate about building companies that matter in the world. What we've done with Rise is taken that same toolkit and said, let's bring the rigor to bear around impact. Let's make sure that we have a very high threshold. It has to achieve a two and a half times impact multiple of money quantifiable against social or environmental agendas or it can't be in the rise fund so it's not that one's impact and one's not it's all impact it's just that we're bringing a level of rigor to bear around how it's quantified that will hopefully be used by the world at large if we get the formula right yeah and how is bono going to be involved day to day with the fund obviously he's an incredible humanitarian and musician for sure and a very smart-minded agent for change but after elevation i think this is probably his first big endeavor in the fund management business. So how are you guys going to partner and how you guys going to work together? He's an old friend and he got involved with us originally after he left Elevation. He got involved with TPG Growth. So we weren't as vocal about his involvement, but he's been a partner working with us. He's part of our Fender investment. We own Fender, the guitar, musical instrument and digital music company. He's been on the board. He and Edge both have been on the board for some time. We've been doing music deals, music investments around the world, et cetera. So he's a very savvy investor and has done very well over the years as an investor. And he's been our partner investing. Obviously, with his history in Africa with both Red and One and his experience on the continent, he came to see the same insight I came to in my life, which is if you really want to drive change, business has to play a role as well. And he was very committed early on to investing in these same environments where he's been active as a social entrepreneur. And you can't wait for government, government to uh, no. enter. And there's intercede. no conflict between the two. It's not that philanthropy isn't important. It's critical. In fact, in many of our deals, if you look at Adodala, we want to work with the most interesting players that are helping small stakeholder farmers increase their productivity. A group called TechnoServe out of Washington, D.C., which does a remarkable job of improving productivity for small stakeholders by providing education and tools and inputs, as well as groups like GAIN, which can bring protein and vitamin supplementation to bear in the milk we're producing. So philanthropy and integrating that dimension with our profitable, scalable, sustainable business agenda is very much aligned. Is Bono going to be sourcing some investments as well? Yeah, and he do- does now. That's great. Yeah, he does now. He's got this weird day job of being a rock star. I would like to argue his day job is investor, but I don't think the band would agree, <laughs> particularly with a new album. <laughs> so it would be a dream to finish the day every day of going out and play some rock music. Yeah, there. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we could all be so lucky. I know. Exactly. Well, I want to shift gears a little bit now and talk about entrepreneurialism. You get the benefit of seeing many entrepreneurs in different ways around the world. It's getting more difficult to be an entrepreneur because things are changing so fast and there are rules that are shifting and new rules being grounded and obviously implemented over time. How do you think about yourself as an entrepreneur? Mm-hmm. These are things that I think about all the time. And this, the, the people that we're watching build and cultivate these businesses, how are they shifting as leaders in today's environment? On the one hand, it's more challenging given how dynamic the world is. On the other hand, it's never been a better time to be an entrepreneur than today. The cost to create a business is a fraction of what it was historically. If you think about consumer brands, you can now build a consumer brand. We have a entrepreneur we back, Greg Renfew at Beauty Counter, who's built this fascinating high growth 
beauty business to a scale major player here by going direct and building her brand as opposed to the old model where you had to go and pay slotting fees and work with a mass market distributor and have a certain share of voice in advertising. Otherwise, you weren't going to get the buyer to stock the shelf with your product. And then, by the way, you have to figure out how to make sure the customer understands the difference between my product and the one sitting right next door to it. So the examples in every single industry are quite extraordinary. The amount of software you can build for very low cost, how you can engineer a new product, the way supply chains now work, you can design a new digital lock for a door and have it engineered in China and be ready with a product to go to market with a virtual team that would have been impossible a few years ago. So the chance to effectively create and build businesses as an entrepreneur has become much more efficient, much more dynamic. The sources of capital, as we discussed earlier, there's infinite capital available in the world. And relatively inexpensive. And relatively inexpensive, which makes life harder for someone like me trying to find investments where I'm effectively feel like I'm getting paid for what I'm doing for the partner. But it is a great time to be an entrepreneur. If you think of what you've created here at Lion Tree, it's extraordinary. That couldn't have been done a short time ago to build a new platform like Lion Tree this way as you've done. So I, I really do think it's a unique time to be an entrepreneur. The flip side of it, as you've said, is it's so dynamic right now. You don't want to be Sears you know, in the retail sector. And they're the equivalent of these in every single sector right now that are being disintermediated, most obviously in media and retail, but in every sector. You run the risk, given the pace of change, even as an entrepreneur, of being disintermediated before you've had a chance to get to any level of scale. Yeah, you're always looking over your shoulder as an entrepreneur. We're nearing the end of the year. Clearly, you're putting a lot of thoughts around the business and how to create change, which is not just good business strategy, but also a great time of year to think about changing the world. But personally, as we finish the year and think about resolutions or reflections, How are you finding uh, your end of the year uh, reflections of 2017? And what do you think is on your mind as you turn the corner to next year? I'm a family person. I have a 21-year marriage and three great kids, a, a junior in high school, a freshman in high school, and a seventh grader, two boys and a girl. You know, one of the challenges of where I am at this point in life is I've never been more energized with what we're doing at Growth and Rise and having partners like Bono and Jeff and the others on the Founders Board and my partners, Jim Coulter and David Bonnerman. It's deeply exciting and meaningful. And the tension I have every day is the priorities of, of being an active, engaged father and husband and trying to also do what I do on a global scale and keep all of that aligned. It's a daily tension where I find if I'm on the road for too long, it actually hurts my heart. (laughs) I have to get home and be with my guys. That's the only real tension in my life. It's interesting. I have one source of stress in life and it's, am I a good father? Am I there for my kids? And I think I am and I'm doing my best. I'm sure you are. You know, I'm trying. We moved to India for a year. We moved to Mumbai, which is a little unusual in my world to pick up and move to a place like that. And the uh, personal reason for it was I wanted my children to realize the world is not Marin County, California, and to see that experience. And it was really driven by my fear that I've created this wonderful life for my kids where they're going to this lovely school and living this life. But are they really growing up with the grit that I grew up with? And are they seeing the way the world really is? Unintended consequences of delivering a nice life for my children. And I'm sure they'd be very interested in what you're up to day to day because of the impact and the technology and the growth. And if there's a way to integrate those in terms of trips and Yep. Seeing the world through your lens, I'm sure it would be very useful. That's, that's what I've been trying to do. So that's the point. Ideally, this has been a unique year with the launch of Rise and raising Rise and growth and all that happening at once and a very dynamic scale portfolio with a lot going on. And hopefully next year is a more integrated year. I have a, one piece of advice for you, mm-hmm. given what you just said, that I think you'd really enjoy. There's a great song 
that I'm going to send you by the Zach Brown band called Two Places at One Time. I know the song. And (laughs) what you described about your family priorities and commitments and obviously the exhilaration of what you do every single day business-wise and that tension is exactly what he sings about. And I identify with that as well. It's one of my favorite songs. Yeah. In fact, Bono has got the same dynamic. He's married to his high school sweetheart, Allie. He's got four wonderful children, his two daughters who are older, one of whom is a great entrepreneur, Jordan Houston herself, and Eve, who's an actress. And then his two boys who are just a year older than my two boys each. How do you be this social figure in the world, one of the great leaders in the world and the biggest band on earth and still be creating great new music. The new album's incredible and help found and start rise the rise fund and invest and be a good father and husband. You know, it's a really interesting challenge that anyone who's really engaged in their life work struggles with. We all try to find the balance. And I also have four kids, two girls, well, you've two got boys. the same problem. Yeah, Uh, but it's a really great luxury. I mean, I think people tend to think of balance as some circle with a line through the middle saying, you know, work on one side and family on the other side. I think it's more of a kaleidoscope. I totally agree. Everything's mixed in together and you have to make it all work every single day. I even think the same thing about the people I work with because I've had the luxury of getting to work with friends and I want to work with friends. I like working with you because you're a friend. Likewise. We were just with another friend of ours in the other room there before this discussion and all my partners, Matt Hobart and Ransom Langford and Mike Stone, Steve Ellis, these are all long-term friends of mine, you know, Jim and David, that I value deeply. And so you're right. Integrating your life is the secret sauce. I agree. Well, Bill, thank you very much. Happy holidays. Thank you. Good luck. And we'll be watching closely on uh, changing the world here and making some financial returns along the way. Absolutely. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. Feel free to leave a review as it helps people find the show. You can also always follow us on social media. Our Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook handle is at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. From all of us at Lion Tree, we want to wish you a happy holidays and best wishes for an exciting and successful new year. Audiation.